Hello, you're listening to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation UK, with me, Will DeFratis. And me, Annabelle Bly. We've just about recovered from the shock of Brexit to bring you our third episode, and it's dedicated to the theme of underdogs. Many will remember the summer of 2016 for the historic progress made by Wales and Iceland in the European Football Championship. Two of the smallest nations ever to qualify, and both went far further than anyone expected. And this follows on from Leicester City's spectacular Premier League win. Remember them? The 5,001 outsiders who stormed to victory. So today we're going to be talking about underdogs and why you root for them. Not just football, honest, we're going to learn a bit about the folklore and fairy tales that crafted our idea of underdogs, and we've dug up some interesting stories of unexpected success. For instance, the strange hippie monkey that defies the law of the jungle, the surprising countries taking on NASA in the race for space exploration, and we also delve into the David and Goliath story of science versus big tobacco, and why it took decades for public health to come out on top. But first, let's go back to football, just briefly. John Williams joins us now. John is a sports sociologist who studies fan culture. Originally from Liverpool, he still supports his hometown club, but for the past 30 years, he's been based in, of all places, Leicester. John, hi. Hi. What's it like watching an underdog come out on top then? Amazing. Absolutely amazing and completely joyful. I think that was the the most striking thing when... When fans who don't expect to win have an amazing win as Leicester City had, then you can you can see it's unrestrained. There's 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 no kind of you know we're used to this and and it, it's just part of who we are. There was absolute wonderful wonderment at Leicester winning the title. Will they still be underdogs? I think Next in the season. eyes of, of, of supporters here, they probably will. And, and they know that the bookies have Leicester as more likely to be relegated than, than win the title again. But they're excited. We've got European competition coming to, uh, to Leicester. And I don't think many supporters here expect Leicester to win the league again. But they, they expect them to have a good season. And do you think it's simply success itself or, or money even, the, the things about underdogs that that we love so much, or is there something else at play? Well, certainly money is in play. I think the, there has been a kind of cynicism growing, particularly in football, about the lack of balance between business and sport, that business has become too powerful and that the Premier League has become a kind of accountant's league table where you can, you can read off the finishing positions by looking at wage bills. And so suddenly Leicester City... Uh, disrupts all of that, takes us back to, to sport. You know, the unpredictability of, of sport is something that people had begun to say had, had disappeared from top-level football here. So that's, I think, why Leicester's story is so big. Was it the sort of unpredictability that got everyone rooting for them? That's right. And, of course, there's a, there's a, there's a great romance to a story about a, a, an underdog succeeding. You know, the little guy against the big corporation, that's not just about sports, that's a much wider kind of story, a tale that we all buy into. And I think that's why so many people here in Leicester and outside Leicester, you know, began to say, I'm not really interested in football, but I'm interested in Leicester City's story. Just to bring things back to the Euros, everyone got so excited about Wales and Iceland over the tournament. Do you think 
Wales in particular, going forward, are going to have to answer to a higher standard to their fans. Growing up as, a, as an England fan, my first real experience of football was Euro 96. And we got all the way to the semi-finals, felt very much hard done by for losing on penalties. And every tournament since then has just been, been a bit of a letdown. <laughs> yeah. I think th- th- there is, I have to say, there is a kind of sense of entitlement amongst England supporters. I, th- I think that's partly to do with, with the origins of the game itself. It's also to do with the nature of Englishness. You know, I heard some, <laughs> some Wales supporters talking about the arrogance of, of the English, and I think that that's certainly part of the English identity, and it's not quite such a central part of the identity of the, of the Welsh, and certainly not around football. So I think, you know, they won't quite have that sense of entitlement just from this competition, But I think invariably their expectations will rise. You know, they haven't been in a major tournament for a very long time. I think they're going to expect to qualify at least for for tournaments coming up. And at least they feel now part of that international football culture. You know, they've got some experience of traveling to one of these great events. Their fans will want that experience again. And there will be increased pressure on on the Welsh to perform. But I don't think it'll ever be seen in the way in which some England fans and and the press here sometimes see the performance of the English national team. Thanks very much, John. That was John Williams there from the University of Leicester. As he mentioned, the underdog story goes well beyond sport. We all want to root for the little guy against the high and mighty. But have we always had this obsession? To dig deeper into the cultural origins of the underdog... Our arts and culture editor, Josephine Lethbridge, spoke with an expert in folklore and fairy tales, Victoria Anderson at Cardiff University. Underdog stories are probably as old as as story itself, so as old as humanity. Uh, Human beings have always told stories to make sense of the world they live in, and being an underdog, feeling powerless, is, is part and parcel of the human experience. So, for example, going back to ancient Greek origin myths, thousands of years before the current era, we would have uh, stories about Zeus, and Zeus's father, who was Cronus, uh, Cronus's father, who was Uranus. So Uranus being the primal sky god who was overthrown by his son Cronus, who actually castrated him um, and then deposed him um, and assumed the throne. Subsequently, it was prophesied that Zeus, who was Cronus's son, uh, would one day uh, overthrow him, and as a consequence, Cronus himself became a, a sort of tyrant and began eating all his children apart from Zeus who escaped. And subsequently Zeus came back and overthrew him and then launched the, the Olympians, the gods that, that we're typically familiar with. So is there a sense that underdogs are a crucial part of, of this system? They're there to clean it, but they're never going to last? Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case in, in, a, in a lot of stories. Crucially, and the underdog is always about power. It's always about power systems, power relationships. It's not simply a case of someone, you know, is maybe a bit hard done by and has a run of good luck and does really well. It's always about somebody who's powerless, um, assuming the position of power. So when you have a a footballing underdog, if the underdog doesn't come and decide they're going to rewrite all the, the rules of football, they play the game within the rules that are already there. And that's what we also see in, in, in folkloric uh, and, and mythical underdogs. They always play the game according to the rules that exist. So they don't substantially rewrite society. The little guy who assumes the role of the big guy, that's, that's what we tend to see happening. Does fairy tales follow the same pattern then? 
Yes, fairy tales obviously are something that we typically associate with children, although historically that hasn't necessarily been their role. You know, adults have told them, listened to them. But there's always been an association with children. And from a psychoanalytical perspective, the idea of the underdog can be arguably perhaps tracked back to a fundamental human experience of being a child and being powerless. And through the underdog story, the child fantasizes about actually being able to assume the role of one of their parents. Um, and Freud talked about this as being the Oedipus complex. It doesn't literally mean we, we want to uh, kill our parents, but it, it is an infantile desire that one day we can take their place or we can be like them. So examples of that might be the three little pigs. You've got three little pigs and the third one uh, overthrows or, or defeats the wolf. What's quite crucial about a story like the three little pigs is that the first two little pigs were also underdogs, strictly speaking, but we don't see them as underdogs because they lost. So uh, the underdog always has to win. Otherwise, he's just a victim or a loser. That's quite crucial in, in, in the underdog mythologies. We also have stories like Jack and the Beanstalk, where uh, somebody's very poor and ultimately overthrows the, the giant against all the odds, um, and then comes back with a whole load of money. And so ending up in a position of power and strength is, is, is quite crucial to, to the underdog story. So they might be selfless, but they're going to end up with something in the end. Yeah, there will there always have to be a payout with the, with the underdog. Well, nearly always. There are some differences between cultures. So I've talked a little bit about Jack and the Beanstalk, so that is a folk story, and that would um, have come from the folk, literally, would, would, who would have been typically quite poor people. So the fantasy wish fulfillment for them is that they can achieve this wealth and be in the position of a wealthy, powerful person. But if we look at it in the context of some other cultures, we might see slight differences. For example, thinking about African-American folk stories and, and mythologies, a particular folk hero from the African-American culture from the slave period and, and after would have been Br'er Rabbit or Old Rabbit. Br'er Rabbit would always outwit Br'er Fox or Br'er Bear or, or these other people who sort of represented the tyrant characters. Uh, quite a well-known story is where Br'er Fox tries to catch Br'er Rabbit by creating a tar baby. Br'er Fox makes this little baby out of tar and, and sticks it uh, in the middle of the road and waits for Br'er Rabbit to come along. And then he waits in the bushes to, to have a good laugh when he sees Br'er Rabbit get tricked by the tar baby. So up comes Br'er Rabbit, sees the tar baby, doesn't realise it's, it's a tar baby, thinks it's a real baby, and starts talking to it. Tar baby doesn't respond, so Br'er Rabbit goes to pick up the baby. Of course, finds he's completely stuck to this tar baby which obviously is not a very good position for Br'er Rabbit to be in. Br'er Fox leaps out of the bushes and Br'er Rabbit says, oh, oh, I can see you're too clever for me, Br'er Fox. Just one thing I ask you, please, please don't throw me in the briar patch. And then he, he goes on, oh, please don't throw me in the briar patch and makes a big fuss about how much he doesn't want to be thrown in the briar patch. And then Br'er Fox, who's quite mean, says, well, it's quite funny, I am going to throw you in the briar patch. So he throws Br'er Rabbit in the briar patch. Thinks that's going to be the end of Br'er Rabbit. Of course, Br'er Rabbit was born and bred in the briar patch, so Br'er Rabbit escapes and has a good laugh at Br'er Fox's expense. Stories like that of, of how Br'er Rabbit continually outwitted Br'er Fox were uh, endemic throughout hundreds of years of, of African American culture. But uh, slightly different from the Jack and the Beanstalk type story. Uh, is that Br'er Rabbit never quite um, achieves a position of power in the sense of money, wealth, security, but he always um, has the mental edge over his oppressors, so he always wins in that sense. Where do you think that difference comes from? It does seem to be that underdog stories achieve power within the bounds of what, how, how, how they perceive that power to be possible. Uh, for maybe African-American communities, there was no sense that they would, they would ultimately achieve wealth, but they always had mental freedom. 
So they might seem to be subversive, but they're really not after all. They're subversive to the extent that they wish to to make a change, or they or they seem to imply that there's a degree of wish fulfillment in, in, in the sense of wanting to make a change. So, for example, a female underdog like Cinderella or like the heroine of the Bluebeard stories um, will typically um, triumph, but she will triumph through um, just escaping or or by marrying through being beautiful. She won't really um, achieve any power or any sense of real autonomy, which is what you tend to see in, in, the, in the other underdog stories. So she always remains kind of passive. So she never achieves true hero status, even though she seems to be an underdog. Underdog stories seem to be subversive, but they're not really changing the social structure. It's the kind of thing I guess we see in terms of the revolutions that have happened throughout history or even the different kinds of religious revolutions that we've seen. So um, a revolution or a, relig- a new religion might start off being feeling very subversive and if it wants to change everything and completely rewrite everything that's gone before. Um, but actually what happens when that change takes place is that actually everything is pretty much still the same. You just maybe have different people uh, in charge. And that tends to be what happens with these, with these underdog folk stories is that they, they, they seem to be wanting to make a big change, but actually they just want different people to be in charge, but then doing the same thing. And that tends to maybe be a, a feature of human history, unfortunately. That was Victoria Anderson at Cardiff University speaking with our arts and culture editor, Josephine Lethbridge. Now, for some, being an underdog never was about revolution anyway. There are underdogs who are happy to play the existing game and try to catch up with the big guys. But make no mistake, they are gunning to become top dog. We switch now to the space race. We all know who's number one, but there are a number of smaller space powers, including China and India, who are trying to muscle in on America's dominance. Despite not having much money, or initially expertise, these countries have scored some remarkable successes. So just how do you escape the atmosphere on a shoestring budget? And how are these insurgents changing the world of space exploration? To find out, our science editor Miriam Frankel spoke with Open University space scientist Monica Grady and Jill Stewart, who's an expert in space policy at the London School of Economics. Does this tune sound familiar? It is part of the soundtrack of Stanley Kubrick's classic film 2001, A Space Odyssey, from 1968. Johann Strauss, who composed it some hundred years earlier, could have never guessed that it would one day illustrate the mood of the space age. In the film, a satellite and a rocket gracefully dance around the Earth to Strauss's melody, waltzing by just like spacecraft do today. But in the world of space exploration, Not everyone is invited to dance. There are plenty of Cinderella's out there with big dreams. And as the world is changing, these underdogs of today are now dressing up for the ballroom of tomorrow. To find out more about which of these countries have a chance of becoming top contenders and how they are changing space exploration, I caught up with Monica Grady, a leading space scientist from the Open University. I think the main underdog countries are India and China. It's interesting to think of China as an underdog, and I regard them as an underdog in as much as they've taken more time than Japan, the Europeans, and NASA to actually 
get into the space race. But since they've got going, they really have produced some amazing achievements. So they they have the man orbit the Earth, they've landed something on the moon, and they really do seem to be progressing at a, a great rate. The other underdog is India, and again, uh, they've, they've put a lot of money into their space industry, and they have, they have achieved amazing things. Again, a mission to the moon, a mission that's orbiting Mars, you know, really spectacular achievements for countries that have sort of come from nowhere and really accelerated. But what kind of impact are they having? Will we see these countries getting involved in building space stations? I think China has ambitions to have its own space station. I think from what I know of India and the Indian space exploration, they are more likely to want to join with NASA and and Europe and Japan in a more communal effort. Now, China might want to do this as well. One of the things, of course, about China is you, you never actually know what they're developing and which way they're going, because there is still a a huge amount of secrecy and difficulty of finding out information. Secrecy and politics have always played a role in space exploration. But after the Cold War and the space race between Russia and the United States, the two countries have managed to collaborate closely in space, despite recent tension on the ground. With these underdog countries joining, will we see a new space race develop? Will they view each other as rivals or will they be happy to collaborate? I asked Jill Stewart from the London School of Economics, who is also editor-in-chief of the journal Space Policy. I think we'll always see collaboration in space, if nothing else, because it's very expensive. I've long said that I'm not very comfortable with the term space race, just because when we think of the space race, we think of the Cold War and the rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. And I think that we have a different context now. It used to be that it was mainly a way to demonstrate prestige, both economic, um, technological, and military prestige. Now space is a very functional role for a lot of countries. It plays an important function in terms of providing an infrastructure that a lot of countries rely upon. But then you also have the more prestige-based activities that tend to be focused more on science. And that, I think, tends to play more into the political side of demonstrating that you are up and coming as a political power. In those cases, I think you have underdogs such as India and China who might rank themselves against, for example, the United States and other other countries that have a long-established space program, but they're also competing against each other. But what about the cost? India famously launched its probe to Mars in 2014 on a shoestring budget, spending nearly 10 times less than NASA did on its MAVEN mission to Mars. But how is this possible, and will it eventually press down prices on space technology? Monica explains. Space exploration is developing in a, a really interesting way at the moment in terms of smaller missions which can be launched more quickly, things called U-cubes which are using a sort of single pattern for launching different instruments into space, is making things much quicker and cheaper. When it gets to more complex missions, when you're going to have to start sending people into space, I don't think you can cut any corners in terms of doing it rapidly, doing it more cheaply. In terms of sending people there, you have to take every precaution and it has to be an absolute Rolls-Royce of a 
of a mission. NASA, when they develop a, a space mission, again, they have an international call for instruments and collaborators. What is different, certainly about China at the moment, is that there's no very, very little input from other nations. India, a little bit more so, but things have been very much focused on internal development. I suspect as time goes on, certainly with India, it's a bit more difficult to predict with China. I think that there will be more cooperation because, you know, you sort of realize, well, actually, you don't have to pay for it all yourself. However, a lot of people have argued that poorer countries should not be spending huge amounts of money on their space programs. But such views are contentious. Here's what Jill's got to say. The reasons that countries invest in space programs now do sometimes have a very practical payoff. So, for example, if you're looking at agricultural monitoring or the monitoring of movement of people or investing in helping your citizenry to link up in terms of telecommunications, then that's a very practical reason and I think has a very obvious payoff. Where you get into tricky territories when you're investing money into sort of purely scientific activities and particularly manned space activity, which is very expensive. And whether or not we should ethically judge countries for whether or not they put money into that is difficult. I mean, the United States doesn't have a nationalized healthcare system. They have, you know, a lot of citizens who live in poverty. And so when we get into this question of, oh, should India be putting money into a space program, I think it's it's ethically very dodgy ground. Monica, like many other scientists, thinks investment in science is invaluable for such countries. The money that is being spent is a, a drop in the ocean compared to what is sometimes spent on arms and weaponry, which all developing countries manage to find money for. But it is enhancing the development of the individual countries by producing a more technically literate, scientifically literate populace. You get specialists. I mean, all countries are going to need IT specialists, computer specialists, all sorts of engineering things for the digital age. And having a space program is an inspiration to get people to join in with that. Perhaps there's good reason for emerging economies to start investing in space after all. Could any of the countries that have just started thinking about space have a chance to take part? Who will be the underdogs of the future? Coming up fast, we've got nations like Brazil, Mexico, who are very interested in space flight. Nigeria has started to invest quite a lot of money in satellite communications technologies. And, you know, this is how you start. You start small and gradually build up as your workforce gets more competent. That was Monica. Jill also sees an opportunity for countries in the Middle East. Countries in the Middle East have long had a space infrastructure, but you see countries like the United Arab Emirates who have expressed an interest in going to Mars, which is interesting. But what about the actual top dogs? Which three countries will lead space exploration in the future, say a hundred years from now? If I had to bet on it, put my own money on it, uh, I think you're definitely going to see a lot of investment from China. I think China could possibly be the next country to land on the moon. 
in terms of Mars, well, countries like the United Arab Emirates have expressed an interest, and they certainly have the finances to back that. And I think that as you have these other countries that are coming out in terms of space exploration for scientific purposes, I think it might rile the United States, if you will, to get back in the game. Monica, however, is more pessimistic about the prospect of having an underdog country catching up with the strongest nations. I think America and ESA, because they are ahead of the game. Russia and Japan, I would I would place Japan ahead of Russia, because Russia has so many internal political difficulties that Japan doesn't have. So, there you have it. NASA is likely to continue at the top, but there seems to be some possibility for countries in the Middle East and possibly China to get a spot at the top table. And I'm sure that will be music to their ears. That was our science editor, Miriam Frankel, speaking with the Open University's Monica Grady and Jill Stewart of the LSE. For a slightly different take on our theme of underdogs, we turn now to public health. Can an idea be an underdog? Well, here's one that most of us take for granted today. And it's a theory that took decades to make its way from the science lab into common sense. That's the link between smoking and cancer. Despite overwhelming evidence, researchers spent decades trying to get it accepted. But they were, of course, up against the tobacco industry and its well-oiled, not to mention well-funded, PR machine. Bringing us this story of science coming out on top in the face of misinformation and other obstacles is our health editor, Clint Witchells. In the 19th century, lung cancer was a very rare disease. But that all changed in the 20th century when the incidence of lung cancer began to skyrocket. No one was certain why. Everything from x-rays to newly tarred roads were blamed. Cigarettes were also suspected, but it wasn't until the 1940s and 50s that a link between smoking and cancer was established. And it wasn't until the 1970s that the tobacco industry even began to acknowledge the link, not without fighting it tooth and nail. I spoke to Karen Evan-Reeves, a research fellow in the Tobacco Control Research Group at the University of Bath, about how the idea that smoking causes cancer became accepted, not just among scientists, but among the wider public. Population and animal studies had been happening throughout the 30s, 40s and early 50s. But it was really in 1950, I think, when five different population studies, so epidemiological studies, were published, which included a paper by Richard Dull and Bradford Hill in England, where these kind of studies look at populations and use statistical methods to identify commonalities between groups of people who have an illness. And the Dolan Hill 1950s study was a cohort study that was set up in 47 to assess whether patients with lung cancer differed from those without cancer. And Dolan Hill went to 20 different uh, London hospitals and asked them to refer cancer patients, not just lung cancer patients, but any cancer patient. And then they looked at, at, at all the different um, factors um, involved in the lives of those patients. And they found that of those with lung cancer, all of them were smokers. And at the same time, across the pond in the US, two other researchers, Wyndham and Graham, were also doing similar studies and found that of 605 men with lung cancer, only 1.3% of those were non-smokers. And then Dolan Hill continued their work 
and did a second study, which is probably the most famous study in that in respect to population studies and smoking. Uh, it was a prospective cohort study, so they identified 60,000 British doctors and sent invitations for them to participate in the study. They got just over 40,000 responses. And in conclusion of their study, so they asked them lots of different questions relating to lifestyle and living environment and found that of smokers who smoked over 35 cigarettes a day, they increased their odds of dying from lung cancer by a factor of 40. But despite the huge amount of evidence, Dolan Hill's landmark study linking smoking and cancer barely caused a ripple. A poll commissioned by the American Cancer Society in 1960 found that two-thirds of US doctors didn't believe that smoking causes cancer. In fact, half of US doctors still smoked regularly. So why wasn't the message getting across? A combination of factors were at play. First off, cohort studies, where a section of the population is followed for a period of time, like Dolan Hills, were still quite a new thing, so there was an element of their research being newfangled. But there were some other big hurdles to overcome. Over 80% of the population smoked at that time, so if you compare that to the UK today, where around 19% of people smoked, that'll give you the kind of idea of the, of the kind of smoking environment it would have been in the middle of the 20th century. It was so normal to be a smoker that people found it really hard to believe that it could be a cause of disease. Even when the government's health minister, Ian MacLeod, made a statement on Dolan Hill's findings in 1954, he chain-smoked four cigarettes throughout his statement, lighting, uh, lighting the next cigarette off the, off the still-burning butt of the previous cigarette. And if you read about the drafting of that statement that Ian MacLeod made, you come to learn that the government was actually very reluctant to publicise the science linking smoking and lung cancer. It was redrafted several times to make Dole and Hill's findings sound less and less conclusive. So the sort of the rhetoric coming out around the studies was quite weak, and that was deliberate from the point of the government, who in the early 50s, 14% of government tax revenue came from Imperial Tobacco. Imperial Tobacco held 80% of the British cigarette market at that time. But as as the evidence was accumulating, the government conceded that it had to make a statement as the evidence was stacking up. And so it would look odd if it didn't say anything, particularly given recent high-profile instances of lung cancer. King George VI had recently died from a heart attack while suffering from lung cancer in 1952. He'd had a lung removed. So the government was reluctant to take a stand on the issue. The idea was up against the fact that so many people smoked. And of course, there was big tobacco to contend with too. So back then, it was a very different time in terms of tobacco industry access to government. So they had free access to ministers and were just starting, really, their campaign. So they were launching what PR commentators referred to as the costliest, longest-running and most successful PR crisis management campaign in history. Here it's worth taking a closer look at the Goliath in the story, the tobacco industry, Cigarette companies did all they could to undermine the idea that smoking was bad for health. It was meddling on an industrial scale. In 1953, they realised that they needed to do something. And in the absence of any uh, science for a safer cigarette, they got together with a um, PR company called Hill & Knowlton. 
and decided to set up the Tobacco Industry Research Committee. As part of this, they issued a statement in the US, which was published in 448 newspapers, called the Frank Statement, which said, we as the tobacco industry are going to get to the bottom of this issue of smoking and lung cancer. And at the same time, they poked holes in the, in the current science, in the population studies and the animal experiments, and said that there was no conclusive proof that smoking was causing lung cancer. And then, moving on from that, they started doing studies into the causes of cancer. And I think instead of focusing on smoking, they were focusing on on all the other factors that could potentially cause cancer and publicising those. The tobacco industry also used a number of innovations to make smoking seem healthier to consumers, including filters and lighter cigarettes with lower tar levels. It almost seems amazing that the public health message won out, Although the Royal College of Physicians published a report in 1963 saying that smoking causes cancer, it wasn't until the late 70s and early 80s that the tobacco industry relented and made some small concessions, finally conceding that heavy smoking might cause ill health. So are we better armed against misinformation as a result of this experience with smoking? Or could industry still keep a scientific idea buried, despite scientists and the public being more aware of these dirty tricks? I think we're certainly more aware and um, more cynical, I think, about attempts of industry to engage in in policy debates that uh, around policies that will ultimately affect their profits. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, these industries aren't still trying to influence the policy debates. It would certainly be nice to think that we've learned this very drawn-out lesson from tobacco, Not all scientific ideas are held back by deliberate misinformation. Sometimes ideas are held back by scientists' own cognitive blind spots. A classic example is something called confirmation bias. The usual account of confirmation bias is that it's something like interpreting evidence to accord with some pre-existing belief. In the context of scientific work, that's usually some scientific theory that people hold. Uh, But it might be other things as well. It might be a a personal prejudice or or a preference or or, or something else. Uh, And what this usually means, really, is that people, including scientists, tend to ignore or or downrate evidence that doesn't fit somehow with their existing beliefs. This can range from being extremely obvious, totally ignoring things that you don't want to hear. Or it can be really very subtle, very subtle differences in the way that scientists work with evidence that fits or does not fit their existing beliefs. That's Brendan Clark, a lecturer in the history and philosophy of medicine at UCL. He explained to me that confirmation bias is consciously or unconsciously favouring and selecting information that confirms one's pre-existing beliefs. It certainly seems to have played a role in keeping some scientific ideas as underdogs for a while. So a very famous one in medicine is the example of hand washing. And there's a case uh, that, that dates from the, the mid-19th century, about 1840, where hand washing was found in, in one particular hospital to, to, to be a very effective way of preventing people getting sick while they're in hospital. But for one reason or another, I, I think because doctors were very unwilling to accept that they themselves were the cause of illness. This idea was very, very slow to to be adopted. And it took something like 30 years, really, before uh, hygienic precautions, including things like hand washing, were widespread in, in European hospitals. 
Luckily, science has developed checks and balances to minimise the impact of cognitive bias, such as the process of peer review, where scientific papers are checked by other professionals working in the field. But these checks and balances can only go so far. The fact is there will always be a grey area where it's impossible to tell whether a person is being influenced by their biases. For that reason, underdog ideas in scientific research are not likely to disappear any time soon. So it's weird to think. If I was health editor at the conversation in, in the 1950s, in between drags of my cigarettes, and I got a pitch from uh, Dolan Hill saying, we've just found the link. <laughs> Another cigarette causes cancer. <laughs> would you would be stubbing it out? Well, would I, would I stub it out then and there? Would I commission it? Or would I say, who, who are these cranks? This isn't mainstream science. I'd like to think, what well, conversation, we're a platform Yeah, I'd like for, to think we, good, we'd good be, at the cutting edge, be at the cutting edge of talking about cohort studies and how significant they were, how convincing all that evidence was. But who but, knows? But, but clearly, clearly, some of our equivalents in 1950 were, were less willing to give them the time of the day. Well, we've heard a lot about underdogs in human culture, underdog ideas, countries, football teams. But what about underdog animals? Should we root for one species over another? To investigate this, I asked some wildlife experts if they fancied nominating a particular animal, an underdog deserving of our support. Rob Young soon got back to me with a great suggestion. Rob is a professor of wildlife conservation at the University of Salford and an expert on primates. He spent many years living and working in Brazil. He told me about the chilled-out, friendly northern mariki, a monkey unlike any other. So these monkeys are found in the Atlantic Forest in Brazil. So this is in south-central eastern Brazil. Um, the Atlantic Forest was once a huge forest which spread all the way from the very south of Brazil up to the very north and tip of Brazil along the coast, the Atlantic coast. But now, unfortunately, it's very defragmented and there's only about 8% of the forest actually left. The ones that um, I've been studying with my students and in collaboration with Karen Stryer from the University of Madison, Wisconsin, are in the state of Minas Gerais in Brazil. What is it that attracted you to the northern Mariki and why should we root for them? So the northern Mariki is a, a species of primate that's unlike any other primate. So it behaves in a way that primates shouldn't behave. So that's what attracted me to them because it's the exceptions to the rules which are always, you know, for a scientist, the most informative. So, you know, knowing how a primate that can live in large groups but have no social hierarchy, no dominance, is extremely interesting because we have no other examples of a primate species with this level of elegitarian behaviour. So how large are these groups who are we talking and, and are there well, truly no rules within them? You can get up to several hundred in a group, but interestingly they form into subgroups. The other primates that behave like this are primates like chimpanzees. Now, chimpanzees have got very strong hierarchies and they're very political and are very aggressive, whereas these monkeys are completely different because they don't really have a political life and they're not aggressive, so you virtually never see any aggressive interactions whatsoever and you don't see any real evidence of politics going on, whereas with chimpanzees you'll always see one individual grooming away another to try and make a friend so that you know they can gang up on other individuals and have a coup and take power in a group whereas these guys nobody wants to be in charge just like a bunch of hippies wandering around in the forest everybody on equal terms is this because they've somehow cracked the secret perhaps of some sort of egalitarian living 
Well, the interesting thing about them is, whereas, you know, most primates, and this was quite a shock for me when I first went to Brazil, most primates would interact with each other by grooming each other to make friends. These guys don't groom each other at all. What they actually do is they engage in group hugs. So you might see, you know, 15 or 20 individuals all hugging each other at the same time. So they have a social interaction, but it seems to be on a kind of lighter level. It doesn't seem to be so focused on specific individuals, whereas chimpanzees are trying to make specific friends for specific support. But I think, you know, this comes down to something very interesting because if you don't have any enemies because nobody's aggressive towards you, then maybe you don't need lots of really close friends. You can afford to be friends with everybody, but you don't need any very close friends specifically. If you're a chimp and you've got all that politics and aggression going on, then, you know, you have got serious enemies, so you do need to have some very close friends. So maybe that's their trick. They're about 1.2 meters tall if they were standing up, so at the height of a small child, they would weigh in the region of about 12 kilograms. This is quite big They're for a They're a kind of whitey beige color, and the males have the largest testicles of any primate species. <laughs> and is, is, there a, is there a reason for that? Well, this is the other interesting thing, is because they're completely promiscuous. But normally, chimps are quite promiscuous, but in chimps, males will still try and limit access of other males to females. Whereas in murakis, what you actually see is, when a female is mating, she comes into estrus, then the males will actually form what's called a mating queue, and they just sit and wait their turn to actually mate with the female which again is unheard of in primates, really. Normally, the one thing that males will compete for, above all else, is the opportunity to pass on their genes through mating with females. And yet these guys just sit there quite happily waiting their turn and will just mate with a female one after the other. So their competition is through their sperm inside the female rather than being aggressively physically competing with each other to be able to mate with the female. And that's why they have very large testicles. And how many of these monkeys uh, still around today? We reckon there's less than a thousand left in the wild. And in captivity? There are none of this species in captivity at the moment. There are some of the southern Muraki in captivity, but none of the northern Muraki. They're quiet monkeys. So monkeys that normally attract people's attention are the ones that are shouting and screaming. And, you know, northern Murakis are actually in the forest. They're quite quiet monkeys. They're quite calm. They're quite relaxed. And most people prefer monkeys which are more agitated. So, you know, that's why species like chimpanzees are very popular because they're very agitated and noisy. One of the things about them, why they're a bit of an underdog, is, you know, if they were in captivity, they wouldn't be seen as attractive by the public, maybe, because they're not as active as certain species. But their name actually means the quiet people. That's what it means in the local Indian language. And, you know, behind quiet people, there are some very interesting things going on. So we as humans can learn a lot from actually looking at different models around us on the planet. And these are a very interesting model of a way to live. They seem to you know, have cracked a way of living which is very peaceful in a social situation without having politics. So Rob, I hear somewhere in Brazil's Atlantic Forest there's a northern Mariki called Robert Young, named after you. Tell me a bit about how that happened. Yeah, so what actually happens is so to identify all the family groups, the students who work in the field, each family group starts with a letter, so all the individuals, in, in this case, their names start with R, 
and so a female gave birth. Her name began with R, and so the student, was one of my students, decided to name the monkey in my honor, so it was called Robert Young. This is something very commonly done by students actually in Brazil. There's actually several monkeys in Brazil, different species named after me. Um, it's a very kind of popular way to honor your academic supervisor in Brazil. You know you've made it as a, a wildlife conservationist when you have multiple monkeys named after yeah, you. Yeah, but, you know, I also think the students do this as well so they can have a bit of fun because then they can say, oh, we saw Robert copulating with such and such. <laughs> will be the name of another supervisor for example yeah so it allows them to maybe have a bit of fun with their supervisors as well perfect this makes me want to go into monkey conservation yeah (laughs) that was rob young there from the university of salford saying why we should root for the quiet people of the forest And who knows, maybe one day you too will share your name with a monkey. Well, that's all we've got time for. Join us next time on The Ant Hill, where we'll be unearthing more stories from the world of academia. Big shout out to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and Annabelle Fly. The Ant Hill is brought to you by The Conversation UK. We're funded by UK universities and research bodies. Check out our website, theconversation.com, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks to all the academics who spoke to us and thanks to you for listening in. Goodbye.